Hello, and welcome to another audio version of Burnt Toast. This is a newsletter where we explore questions and some answers around fat phobia, diet culture, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. I'm a journalist who covers weight stigma and diet culture, and I'm the author of The Eating Instinct and the forthcoming Fat Kid Phobia. Today, I am so, so thrilled to be chatting with Reagan Chastain, who is a professional speaker and writer, trained researcher, co-author of the Hayes Health Sheets that I link to probably in everything I write. Um, Reagan is also a multi-certified health and fitness professional, queer fat woman. Reagan, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to do this with you. Oh, thanks for having me. I love your work so much. I'm giddy's a schoolgirl. <laughs> Reagan and I have been like in each other's orbits for a very long time now, right? Like we were talking about like something that we worked on that like the website doesn't even exist anymore. So yeah, like grandma's on this stuff. For real. <laughs> Virginia gave me my very first paid freelance work in this space. She was leaving a platform and recommended me. So she's been supporting my work and just be an awesome leader in her own right for a long time. That's very lovely of you to say. I mean, Reagan was someone who I, I think it was like, yeah, like mid 2000s, like when I first found your work, when you were doing Dances with Fat, which is your amazing personal blog. Um, and, you know, you were extremely patient with my learning curve on a lot of this. And <laughs> I really appreciate it. And yeah, it's, um, it's just really cool to be where we are now and all the great stuff that you're doing. Um, so yeah, so for folks who don't know, I will, of course, link to it in the transcript. Um, Reagan created the very beloved fat activism blog, Dances with Fat. Um, and she is now writing a substack called Weight and Healthcare. So, Let's start with that, Reagan, because, I mean, you have this amazing blog. You've been doing it forever. You have, like, I don't even know, a thousand posts on there. Um, you know, you are quite busy. What inspired you to also say, <laughs> I need a newsletter on top of all yeah, this? Yeah, let's do something else. Um, yeah, so I started Dances with Fat back in 2009, and there are, I think, a little over 1,800 posts on there now. Um, and so I've written about a lot of things. And I, in the same year, I started doing talks and work specifically with healthcare professionals uh, around like working with higher weight patients, best practices, weight stigma, weight science, healthcare. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote about that on Dances with Fat, but recently I've started to do more of that work and to do it at a higher level and to get a lot of requests for like, I wish your health stuff was all in one place mm-hmm. so that I could see it. Um, and, you know, when I'm talking with a VP of a major healthcare group, sending them to Dances with Fat is not <laughs> like ideal, even though I'm very proud of that blog. It's not quite the, the thing that they're looking right. for. Right, and right. so I knew about Substack and I knew about Burnt Toast. And so, um, reached out to Virginia who helped give me the sense of how Substack worked and uh, what, and it seemed like a really good platform for this specific type of work. Uh, and so I, you know, got a little logo made from Tony tails, little <laughs> researcher Reagan icon. And then, so uh, and then put together some of the posts from dances with fat that were sort of classic posts around this. And now I'm going to be writing new stuff as well. So super excited. It's awesome. And I think it's great. I mean, it's, you know, I sort of love the idea of like healthcare CEOs going to dances with that. It like, gives <laughs> me, me a lot, lot of joy, actually. <laughs> um, but I think it's smart as like a activism strategy to have it all in one place. And it's just very helpful for folks who are new to your work and, you know, coming to you specifically with healthcare questions to sort of be able to jump in. You're doing a lot of like heavy lifting on the sort of 101 kind of questions that people come up with. So yeah, this is a really phenomenal resource for folks. 
Um, yeah. And you're just writing a lot of stuff that, you know, we're recording this, I should say, right after your first launch week. So you've been putting up a lot of pieces that I already feel like, well, I will be linking to this forever. Um, and, you know, just covering these really like fundamental questions that sometimes you, you know, I think for those of us in this space that you can get kind of exasperated, like this question's coming up again. And I feel like I've talked about this, but it's also true that for people who are new to challenging this huge paradigm that's been baked into all of us, like you do have to start with these fundamental questions and kind of grapple with some of this stuff. So it's really great that you're kind of laying that, that groundwork out for folks. Um, and the first one I wanted to chat about is, you know, you wrestle with the question of is being fat a chronic lifelong health condition? Um, you know, this comes up, people say like, but isn't it a disease? You know, isn't, isn't obesity a disease and all of this? And yeah. So walk us through it, Reagan. Yeah. So this is something that has been uh, coming up more and more, this idea, because, uh, you know, that it's not just if you have health conditions, so that existing in a fat body is a chronic lifelong health condition for which people should get treatment. Right. And Even that if treatment, there are no other, like that in and of itself is the health problem is the, is right. the argument. Yeah. Right. And so this has been pushed for a while now by people who sell dangerous and expensive quote unquote treatments mm-hmm. for weight loss. Um, and I first started seeing it happening in the most insidious way with organizations that claim to be advocacy organizations, mm-hmm. like the quote unquote obesity action coalition, but that are actually fully and well funded by diet drug manufacturers, weight loss surgery purveyors. And so what happened was their, for the diet drugs, for example, their product doesn't work long term. So people gain the weight back as soon as they go off the drugs. Right. And so if they can say, oh, well, it's a chronic and lifelong condition, then they mm. can just keep people on the drugs forever, which is exactly what Novo Nordisk is doing and why they're pushing this so hard right now. Right. Uh, it right. also expands their market to every fat person alive. Uh, and so that is, you know, a boon for them. It helps them with what is their golden goose, which is insurance coverage. Yes. They can't get insurance to cover these things because they're expensive and because they don't work. <laughs> and so by saying like, oh, well, it's because you haven't let us do it long enough, they're expanding their market that way. The problem <sighs> is that it doesn't actually make any sense or work out. And here's why. Uh Thin people get all the same health issues that fat people do. So being thin or thinner can neither be a short preventative nor a short cure. Right. That's just not how that works. Right. Uh, and in addition, this idea that if fat people experience a health problem more often than thin people, then obviously their body size is the problem and making them thinner is the solution is not a science-based conclusion. We have to look at in any time in research, what are the confounding variables that be, could be causing this? And in this case, weight cycling, weight stigma, and healthcare inequalities are well-researched mm-hmm. for their negative impacts on fat people's health. And what this idea of fat being a chronic condition does is it increases those three things. And I want to be super clear. There is no shame in having a health condition. Right. And there is no shame in seeking treatment. The shame here is trying to make simply existing a pathologized condition for which people can sell dangerous treatments that risk people's life and quality of life for an outcome that isn't shown to be positive almost ever and right. is actually shown to be harmful a lot of the time. Um, and so the uh, AMA studied this. They had their uh, Committee on Science and Public Health study whether or not being fat should be a disease. And the committee came back and said, no, 
And the AMA said, okay, well, thanks for your time, but we're going to go ahead and declare it a disease anyway. And so like, don't, I always have to just take a minute with that. So (laughs) I just want people to really take that in. The American Medical Association's committee that was asked to study that question, should we medicalize weight, higher body weights, said, no, the evidence does not support that. And the AMA said, okay, so we're going to do it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's, there's a lot of like, let me just take a minute to bang my head on a desk and then I'll complete this post that I'm writing sort of situation. And that is one of those for sure. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just had to really really sit with that one again. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's important because it is like, because this seems so sciencey and medically, right? BMI is an equation and that's math and math is science. And mm-hmm. we have these words like quote unquote obesity that, uh, that pathologize body size. It can sound really legitimate. Right, right. But then you start digging and it's like body mass index is just a complicated ratio of weight and height that is uh, racist in its origins. Right. right? Sabrina Strings, Fearing the Black Body and Deshaun Harrison's Belly of the Beast are books I recommend to everyone to mm-hmm. read about mm-hmm. this and other issues within racism and body size uh, intersections. Uh, so there's that piece. The The term obesity just comes from the Latin meaning to eat until fat. This is not <laughs> science. No, no, <laughs> not that's at just all. stigma. Yeah, yeah. It's a term that was created to pathologize bodies. It was yeah. invented for that purpose. And so, you know, the AMA saying, oh, yes, this is, this constitutes a chronic health condition or a disease sounds very sciencey until you find out that the actual science people had to be ignored to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. And it, as you were just saying a minute ago, you know, that then, you know, this quote unquote chronic lifelong condition, we're talking about the treatments that they are pushing exacerbate the condition because the condition is actually living with weight stigma, living with, you know, social inequities around healthcare, all of these other issues that these treatments further. So yeah, it's just, it's a lot, it's a lot to take in and yes. So yes, fat is not a chronic lifelong health condition. Um. It really isn't. And I mean, one of the things it's sort of sad, like the, it's gotten out that intentional weight loss interventions fail the vast majority of the time and the majority of the time have the opposite of the intended effect, right? People gain back all of their weight and up to 66% of people gain back more than they lost. Yes. And so the response wasn't like, oh, well, hey, there's a mountain of evidence that shows that there are better ways to support the health of fat people than trying to make them lose weight. The suggestion was, well, then let's do it harder mm-hmm. and more and more dangerously. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what we're seeing with the pharmaceuticals. That's what we're seeing with the surgery is that we're getting health care for fat people that's based on the premise that it is acceptable to kill fat people in an effort to make them thin. Yeah. And yet this is the same group that like, I mean, as you were just saying earlier too, about like the trying, like they're saying like, we need to get insurance coverage for these things, even though they don't work. Um, You know, they frame that as an example of the stigma. Like they're like, look, it's like so misunderstood that the insurance companies won't even pay for these treatments that these people desperately need. And it's like, they don't see, they don't see the inherent disconnect there. And yeah, I just, I don't have a question there. I just have more frustration. Um, I'm going to say they aggressively don't see the disconnect <laughs> there. They possibly it. negligently yes. don't see purposefully, dare I say, don't see it, right? Because they're claiming to be anti-stigma, but the saying, well, we don't want to stigmatize fat people. We just want to eradicate them right. from the earth and make sure no more ever exists. That's not an anti-stigma message. It's a no. profitable one for them, yeah. but that is a far from an anti-stigma message. And so one of the 
the things that's really frustrating to me is the way that they are co-opting the messages of anti-weight stigma that fat liberation community have spent so long trying to get out there and then using them to sell even more dangerous yes. intentional weight loss methods is like super extra gross and upsetting. Yes. 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 Thank you. That's very well put. And it's, yeah, it's very maddening. Um, yeah. And I think it leads to so much conflict for folks who are their target audience because, you know, maybe they're becoming, you know, they're sort of increasing awareness of some of this rhetoric around stigma. And then they're like, but look, this, this product claims to also understand that. And it's just like, it's so insidious because it's taking advantage of that experience of being stigmatized and yeah, trying to turn a profit on it. Yeah. And they are creating weight stigma and then selling their dangerous product as a quote solution, right? This idea that, oh, if you don't want to be oppressed, you should change yourself to suit your oppressors. Yeah. That's that's what what I want my kids to learn. Just make the bully like you better. That's exactly. Give them your lunch money and maybe they'll stop beating you up. I don't know. Um, yeah, and as it's not a perfect comparison, obviously, but as someone who is both queer and fat and who came out in the mid nineties in Texas, I see parallels between mm-hmm. that and like this idea, like, we'll just, you know, do whatever dangerous thing you need to do to make yourself straight right? so that you right. don't experience homophobia, right. right? This idea of changing yourself to move yourself out of the oppressed category rather than fighting oppression. And this is what I feel like I spent years fighting my body on behalf of weight stigma. Right, right. And the shift that I made, weight stigma is real and weight stigma does real harm, including to me. But now I fight weight stigma on behalf of my body. Oh, I love that. That's a great way of putting that. Yeah, that's really, that's a really helpful framing. Okay. So the next one I wanted to talk about, um, you really took one for the team by taking on one of the most common and irritating troll comments around fat activism. This comes up all the time that all these fat people are a drain on the system because they're costing us so much money in terms of tax dollars and healthcare. And, you know, this is an argument that hits me really personally, not around weight, but, you know, I have a daughter with a chronic heart condition. And when I've written about her experiences and when I wrote a piece for Slate that I'll link to talking about how the fact that we had $3 million in medical bills before she turned three years old. Um, and that's why things like universal healthcare are a great idea. <laughs> to help families avoid (laughs) destroying themselves financially to save their children. The number one troll response I got was some kids aren't meant to live. She's a drain on the system, which is like a cool thing to have on the internet about your kid. Um, And yeah. And I mean, as we were just saying, like fat isn't a chronic condition. So it's not, again, it's not like a one-to-one conversation here, but I think this argument really taps into like this sort of profound ableism in the way we think about who is deserving of help and who is deserving of healthcare. And yeah, so I would just love for you to kind of walk us through why this isn't even a very good argument to make. Yeah. So in the piece, I tackled it from two aspects, like if the reality and then if it were true that fat people are this like, right, like right. drain on the system. Um, and the first thing I always do when somebody comes at me with this, my tax dollars argument is I say, well, I want to see your yes, no tax list. (laughs) And they say, what? Yes, no tax list. And I say, oh, the one that shows all the things your taxes pay for broken down into what you do and don't want to pay for Mm -hmm. and the interventions you're involved in for everything you don't want to pay for. Right. right. And when they can't produce such a list, then I explain that conversation is over until they can, because (laughs) this isn't about their tax dollars. This is about trying to find a justification for their fat bigotry. Yes. And this is what they've arrived at that people sort of find acceptable. Like, oh, well, I'm paying for their health care. And, you know, that's what civilized societies, that's what good that's what societies 
do, right? Yeah. So I am paying for the, you know, healthcare of people who jump out of helicopters wearing skis or people whose <laughs> attempt to climb mountains are dramatically unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. And I want to do that, right? That's, that's what a good society does. Right. Well, anytime you say, okay, this group of people who we can identify by sight, um, is a drain on society and we should eradicate them to make things cheaper for everyone. Like you have gone down a bad, bad road. It's a scary place. Yeah. And it ends with you. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it doesn't end with anything good. <laughs> no, this um, is a straight up eugenics argument. Yes. Yes. And we have to really recognize that this is how we like gently bring ourselves to this eugenics place is by saying, Oh, well, if my tax dollars pay for someone's healthcare, then I should have some say in what, how they behave. And I find that people who want to say this about me don't want other people to be doing it to them. No, no, no. Right. So yes, (laughs) whether they are a raw foods, vegan or a, you know, keto paleo person, they believe that they're right and they are not interested in other points of view. And this is where it really starts to break down because if somebody says that, like who gets to decide for all of us, Mm -hmm. if somebody finds that, for example, a raw foods, vegan diet is the most healthy, do we all have to do that? And do we all have to do that in order to access healthcare? Like, yeah, what exactly. Do we like, owe each other in order to access care. Yeah, exactly. And so again, this is a really dangerous argument that's really being made by people flipply in many cases, mm-hmm. just to justify being, you know, discriminating against fat people in general, yeah. just to justify their weight bigotry. So they don't follow it to the end of where that goes. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's really dangerous. And also like fat people pay taxes too. Like my taxes go to fund a government war on quote unquote obesity that, mm-hmm. you know, makes my life terrible and has negative impacts on my health. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, so this idea as if fat people aren't paying tax dollars and, you know, it's, the whole thing just gets really discombobulated. Yeah. But in general, this argument, when you scratch the surface even a little bit, just becomes a thin veil for fat bigotry that is unsupportable by any kind of evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And ableism. Yeah. It's saying that like the only people worthy of healthcare are people who are making some set of virtuous choices that we approve of or who like won the genetic lottery and don't really need healthcare. <laughs> Like, right. yeah, like who don't like, it's just, you know, I mean, that's what sort of struck me, you know, with when it's levied against fat folks, it's often because people are blaming people for their body size and assuming that like, it's your lifestyle that led to this as opposed to, you know, the fact that people just come in different body sizes. And then like with something like my daughter, it's like, they're like, well, you can't say the baby's responsible for her heart condition, but we still don't want to pay for it because like, that sounds hard and complicated and expensive. And like, like we just, you know, and that's when it becomes like this really ableist thing of like, well, some lives are more valuable because they, because they have this genetic luck. It's, it's really disgusting. Yeah. It's super disgusting. And it, there's a lot of places like this where the intersections of ableism and healthism and fat phobia mm-hmm. come together. Yeah. And this is certainly one. And one of the things that is also frustrating is that the idea of body size as a choice is obviously really problematic. But even if we believe that that was true, also a choice is playing sports, which costs yeah. billions of dollars in sports injuries every year that are completely unnecessary, right? Research shows that moderate walking gives us the health benefits that can come out of movement. So nobody right. needs to be playing sports. 
Oh, that I love this. I love this so much. As someone who just hates sports, um, <laughs> makes me really see, I'm someone who loves sports and who does like ridiculous fitness. I know things. you do. You're and, very amazing in that way. <laughs> oh no, I, it's just what I, I, you know, just to be super clear, health and fitness by any definition, not a obligation, not a barometer of worthiness, not entirely within our control. And there is this good fatty, bad fatty thing. So I always want to be clear. Look, completing a marathon, having a Netflix marathon, morally equivalent activities. I've yes. done both. I can tell you for sure. So it's not about that, but like. I enjoy doing fitness, but I'm also aware, like, when you go to a triathlon or when you watch the CrossFit games and people have an exoskeleton of physio tape, like, that's a lot of injuries (laughs) that people don't need to have in their lives, but they're choosing that lifestyle. Shaq got knee surgery, even though he for sure caused his knee problem and was going right back to the lifestyle that caused it. That would make his knee surgery last not as long and not have the same efficacy as if he didn't go back and to the lifestyle he was in. So this, when we start to look at it, the NFL is literally created yes. to risk people's short and long-term mental and physical health yes, absolutely. in the hopes that one day their team will score enough points to get a shiny piece of jewelry. <laughs> And like, you're allowed to do that, but let's not act like it prioritizes the health because it doesn't. This is a whole group of people purposefully not prioritizing their health. And the average player is broke by two years out of the league. So if you want to talk Mm -hmm. about people who are going to cost money. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really expensive. Yeah. (laughs) So. Yeah. Yeah. It's this, once we start scratching the surface of this argument, it breaks down hard and fast for every reason really that there is. Yeah. For, for all of the reasons. All the reasons. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay. Another piece I loved that I'm going to link to is, you know, where you break down about why diets fail. Um, this is something I've talked about a lot in the podcast, so we don't need to go into like the things, but everyone who wants to catch up, read Reagan's piece. Um, but a line that really jumped out to me in your piece, you said, um, the entire basis of prescribing weight loss for greater health is built on the decidedly unscientific premise that if we make fat people look like thin people, they will have the same health outcomes. You touched on that a little bit at the start of our conversation, but I think it's such a critical point. And I just wanted you to unpack that for us a little more. Sure. When I started do, I did my original literature review of weight loss looking for the best diet. I was still in diet culture, but I, my background is research methods and statistics. And so I was like, I've never really researched this and I have been, you know, yo-yo dieting for years. So I was like, well, let's, let's read every study. Let's break it down. Let's do a literature review. Let's find the best diet. And what I found was that, you know, as you've said all the time, there wasn't a single study where more than a tiny fraction of people were succeeding at long-term significant weight loss. But the thing that really blew me away. So there wasn't a single study that showed that the people who were successful had better out health outcomes or similar health outcomes to thin people. That study doesn't exist in large part because there aren't enough people who are successful to commission such a study. Right. Right. But it's hard to do research on unicorns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and like the national weight control registry tried it. They've got 10,000 successes since 1994. There've been over a billion attempts, but okay. Um, and what they found were just some commonalities among outliers, right? 98% of the people who have lost 30 pounds and kept it off for a year, uh, ate breakfast. Okay. They don't know how many of the 1,359,000,000 right. also ate breakfast. A lot of us eat breakfast without right. successfully losing weight. Yeah. yeah. Had I turned in the study plan of the National Weight Control Registry my freshman year of research methods, I really feel like I would have been like standing with the dean 
who would have been like, you know, there are a lot of majors here and I think you should choose another one because you don't understand this like a pretty basic level. But yet it's considered to be this medical science that proves that significant long-term weight loss is ridiculous. And so, yeah, this, like, this doesn't exist. And it would be like, so we know that cis male pattern baldness is highly correlated with cardiac incidence. Mm -hmm. So it would be like if they stopped there and said, we got to get these people to grow hair, obviously. (laughs) And like when the initial attempts didn't work, they were like, we need more dangerous ways to grow hair, drugs and surgeries. And there was a war on baldness and people were blamed for not trying hard enough to grow hair. And they were calculating the cost of all of their cardiac incidents and saying, we should eradicate these people because my tax dollars are paying for all these bald people who won't grow hair. And like that is exactly what they did when it came to weight and health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They simply stopped. And those who didn't stop are getting ignored. Uh, Glenn Gazer uh, and Sartha Angari just put out an incredible study, and I wrote about this as well, mm-hmm. that looked at just physical activity versus weight loss um, as a health intervention and found that, as many studies have found before them, weigh it all, maths and all, Cooper and Street Longitudinal Studies, bury it all, that, you know, in fact, health-promoting behaviors were far better predictor of future health than were weight loss attempts. Yes. And this is what all of the research shows. But again, it just goes back to this idea that, well, if fat people and thin people have different health outcomes and the solution is to make the fat people look like the thin people. Right. And that's, that's what will we give us our solution. Yeah. yeah. Done. Yeah. And it just like, it's so embarrassingly shockingly poor in terms yes. of like research methods that I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around it. Lucy Aframore did an incredible paper about the validity of the research within dietetic articles. Yes. We'll link to that one too. That's a great one. Yeah. It's a great piece. And I recommend it for people who are trying to look into this because it's so difficult, you know, as somebody who had both a research and statistics background and who had been sold more aggressively than anything in my life, except white supremacy, the idea Mm -hmm. that I could be thin if I tried hard enough and being Mm -hmm. thin would make me healthy. I did my literature review twice. (laughs) I got to the end and I mean, hours y'all. And I was like, I can't have gotten this right. And I went back to the beginning, every single study I was doing calculations by hand. I was trying to figure out like, how did this can't be real? And in fact it is. And it's absolutely shocking and hard for people to wrap their heads around. And especially when I talk to healthcare providers, right? They are so steeped in this and they're so certain in science and their whole medical school education was about this. And so I really admire the healthcare practitioners I've worked with who have been able to really take a step back. Mm-hmm. And say, okay, let's go back to the research. Yes. And, and let's see actually if show. Yeah. 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 And something else I was thinking about in sort of reading your latest stuff is, and that frustrates me often on this is even when doctors do go to the research and look at the evidence and see that, you know, we do have evidence that healthy habits improve health outcomes regardless of weight. We do not have evidence that weight loss improves health outcomes. Like even when they see that data, they go back to their patients and translate that into like eat more vegetables or exercise more. (laughs) That means weight loss. I should still be prescribing weight loss, you know, or they prescribe healthy habits in this like very generic and unrealistic way that people can't do, you know, that's, that's not going to be sustainable. I mean, I'm thinking of a doctor I saw when I was like six months postpartum and my baby wasn't sleeping through the night and she was concerned about my weight. And she was like, well, I'm, I walked an hour a day when I had a newborn. And I was like, 
that's nice for you, but like I have a job and two children and I don't have an hour to walk. If I had an hour to walk, I would sleep. Like <laughs> it's just not realistic. But you know, it's like this very like, well, why don't you do this unsustainable thing? Um, and I, you know, and a friend of mine was just telling me similarly, she's pursuing, you know, treatment for various medical conditions. And the guy was like, intermittent fasting will solve all your problems. And she's like, I am parenting and working full time during a pandemic. I have two chronic conditions. (laughs) Like starvation is not a great way for me to go. (laughs) Um, So it gets like the way that diet and fat phobia shows up in the healthy habits conversation feels really problematic to me um, because it ends up becoming another form of shame and stigma. So what are your thoughts about this? Like, what can we do as patients to advocate for ourselves in these conversations? Because I think even understanding the literature, you know, as I do, as you do, like when you then go into the room and you're talking to a doctor and they're throwing this at you, it's like, what do I even say? How do I start? Yeah. So there's a couple ways you can go. Um, and so these, the recommendations that we often get from doctors are not even evidence-based. This thing like, oh, you have to, you know, walk a long time. Like, that's not true at all. Like, we find five minutes of movement done intermittently throughout the day has the same health benefits as like one big group of movement, for example. So even if they're recommending movement, a little goes a long way. There are studies that show that 20 seconds of movement can improve different uh, markers of health. So like, there's that piece of it. So you can learn about that and you can talk about that with your healthcare practitioner. Um, the other way to go is to try to bypass it. And I find that my magic question for years that I recommend with doctors is, um, what would you recommend with a thin person in this mm-hmm. situation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And often that bypasses some of the fat phobia. Interesting. And some of the like recommending healthy habits, but really believing that if you did them, you would lose weight. Right. right. And this becomes ridiculous at some point. I had a doctor, uh, I was regular physical new doctor. And he's like, I I just, at the end, I just need you to do something for me. And it's going to be so hard, so hard. But if you can do it, it is going to change your life. I'm like, okay. And he said, I just need you to start walking 10 minutes a day. And to his credit, 10 minutes a day is a reasonable, you know, he didn't say you have to walk, you know, an hour. hour, Like your doctor said. However, I was training for my first marathon and I had done 18 miles the night before. <laughs> and so I told him that and I was like, I, you know, I'd be glad to do 10, 10 minutes a day because I'm going to claw back a lot of time that way, but I don't think it's going to really meet my goals at all. And he said, you know, it, look, you don't have to lie about it if you're not going to do it. Oh my God. Oh my yeah. God. So <sighs> one thing to always know, I, you know, I, to, there's a whole workshop I teach about dealing with fat phobia at the doctor's office is that, um, this isn't your fault. This shouldn't be happening. Yeah. And you can't make a doctor practice ethical evidence-based medicine. No, you can't. That's true. And so, you know, I teach ego management techniques because I live in LA. I can fire a doctor a day and I will. Mm-hmm. There, there are tons of them around. Right. Um, but if someone lives in a rural area, there's only one doctor, they have different options. And so then you can try to like manage their ego. You can try things like, oh, I'm actually already uh, doing a weight loss diet and I've, I've lost some weight over. This doesn't have to be true, by the way, um, you know, but it hasn't really helped. So like, what would you do for a thin person? Let's try that as well. Uh, or like, sure, I'm going to take this diet advice you're giving me and like, can't wait to, you know, put food yeah. in baggies of certain caloric amounts. Um super excited. But in the meantime, like, right. you know, my cousin had this and she was given this medication or this, because again, we go back to the ways that this impacts fat people's health. 
When a thin person gets an evidence-based treatment for their symptoms and a fat person gets a diet, it delays that evidence-based treatment for who knows how long. Yeah. Probably forever because that diet isn't going to work. So unless the doctor says, okay, this isn't working, I'll give you the treatment, it can delay treatment forever or the person maybe doesn't go back. And so this is just one of the ways that these healthcare inequalities impact fat people's health. So, you know, if we can try to get that ethical evidence-based treatment a thin person would get by saying, sure, happy to do your diet thing, but let's also do this. Mm-hmm. Like working around it that way can be really helpful. Mm, that's really smart. And of course, we're not saying you should do their terrible diet idea. Just no. That you should. no, gosh, no. Just to be clear, don't, you never don't do, do it. Diet. No, don't do it. Um, and I also want to be clear, like lying to your healthcare practitioner is not not ideal. Not <laughs> ideal. Yeah. Ideally, you wouldn't want to do that. Um, right. But it's the fact is that weight stigma in healthcare forces fat people to make some really difficult choices that yeah. we shouldn't have to make. Yeah. Yeah. And so like this is one of them. And so, you know, I in the past have needed care, not been able to like just shop around and said, nope, I, you know what? I already lost 75 pounds and it hasn't helped at all. Like what else is there? What else do you have? Yeah. And that was in that moment effective. Oh, okay. Well, that's great. Congratulations. And now suddenly I'm somebody who's, you know, compliant and deserves ethical evidence-based care that by the way, what they recommended was recommendable 10 minutes before when I was just fat. Right. And they didn't believe that I was a fat person who was currently shrinking. So it's something that we have to navigate and our choices are often not ideal. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. And it's frustrating because you are then stuck needing to like play into that good fatty stereotype, which is mm-hmm. a harmful stereotype and unnecessary. But if that gets you the treatment you need and it's a way to sort of preserve your mental health through a shitty ordeal, then, you know, it's worth doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of privilege goes into this too. Um, mm-hmm. Not just good fatty privilege, but like as a white cisgender, currently mm-hmm. able-bodied, currently neurotypical person, for those with multiple marginalizations, for those who are higher weight, mm-hmm. these solutions are less effective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because of intersectional oppression and because of the greater oppression that higher weight people face. So, mm-hmm. like, I want to be clear about that, too. My experience is, it's like, your mileage may vary due to oppression kind of situation. Yes. <laughs> due to all of the oppression. Oh, well, this is still so, so helpful. And I'm also going to link to the Hayes Health Sheet website that you've put together, which is a phenomenal resource for folks. Um, uh, Reagan worked with Louise Metz and who's your other partner? Uh, Tiana Dodson. Tiana Dodson, who's amazing as well. Um, and they've put together this whole library of like different health conditions and, you know, what would be the weight inclusive approach to this health condition as opposed to the weight loss centered approach that many doctors take. So it's great to check out. And there's also just like all of the research that we've referenced basically in this conversation linked there very nicely. So, you know, if you're preparing for a medical encounter, like this is a great place to kind of go and prep yourself for, um, yeah, for what's to come. So, (laughs) That is a good one. Um, all right. So we're going to wrap up with our recommendation segment. This is where we just talk about something we're loving. It can be a book, a product, anything, an experience you've had recently. So Reagan, what have you got for us? I have for you Latoya Shante Snell's Running Fat Chef podcast. Ooh. Um, so Latoya Shante Snell is this incredible, uh, black fat disabled athlete and activist. 
Great. And, uh, she put together this, uh, this podcast with different athletes talking about, um, like the intersections of weight stigma and fitness in the athletic world and how to overcome that. And so I love all of her work and her podcast is incredible. That sounds phenomenal. I will definitely link to that and be subscribing and downloading immediately. So thank you. That's an awesome recommendation. Mine is a little more out of left field, given the whole context of our conversation, but very much in the field for the context of my life right now, which is a parenting book I'm finding very helpful called Why Is My Child in Charge by Claire Lerner. If you have a preschooler or a toddler who is often trying to be in charge of your life in many ways, um, this book, and you know, I am not a big fan of parenting writing, which is weird to say since I get labeled as a parenting writer all the time. Um, but it's true. I'm not the hugest fan. Um, but Melinda Wenner Moyer, who's a parenting writer I love, recommended this book and actually loaned me her copy because I was texting her about various tantrums happening in my house. Um, and it is like already really changing my mindset. And what's kind of interesting about it is she's really, um, framing parenting as understanding that you cannot control your child's behavior. Like your job is not to fix their behavior. You can only sort of control the framework of the situation you're in. So your job is not to like persuade them to agree with every rule you make or to get them to sort of like change their minds about stuff, but actually to just like keep providing the framework they need to, you know, be like loved and nurtured, but like also not, um, you know, need to stay up an hour past bedtime and ruin your life and that kind of thing. Um, and it's just a helpful framework. I think actually applies to a lot and sort of applies to what we're just talking about with doctors. Like you can't change their minds either. Um, it's like a useful message for going through life of like, okay, I'm not here to like change other people's behavior. I'm just here to like set my boundaries and set the framework I need to function. So yeah, check it out. I'll link to that one as well. It's been very helpful for me personally with a certain four-year-old at the moment. Um, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say, I feel like I need to read it for my little Maltese. Uh, we <laughs> yes. named him after three drag queens and he acts like it. Don't name, there's another piece of advice for you. Don't name your dog after three drag queens. Terrible um, idea. I think it also definitely applies. We have a dog whose behavior I cannot control, but I can control the framework. So yeah, there's like a lot of, it's just like a, Oh, that's a great way to navigate with people and relationships. Like you can't change other people. Um, as much as some of us with personally with type A control freak personalities <laughs> want to. So yeah. Um, all right, Reagan, where can Burke Toast fans find more of your work? So my newsletter is weight and healthcare. So you can find that on Substack. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned the Hayes Health Sheets and then yes. Dances with Fat, which also has, I do a monthly workshop and the one coming up November 10th is on, um, dealing with fat phobia at the holidays. Oh, so perfect. we will, we talk a lot about like, we can't control other people's behavior, but we can control our reaction <laughs> yes. and, and boundary setting. So that will fare heavily in that conversation. Excellent. Um, and so you can, if you go to Dances with Fat, you'll also find all of my like little social media. If you want to find me there. A past writing outside of the healthcare sphere. So that's a good place as well. Awesome. Reagan, thank you so much for doing this. This was a great conversation. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to get to hang out with you. <laughs> and thank you all so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you like this episode and you aren't yet a subscriber, please do that. If you are a subscriber, thank you so much. And please consider sharing Burnt Toast on social media or forwarding this to a friend, maybe a friend with a doctor's appointment coming up. 
Um, Burt Toast transcripts and essays are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus size clothing. Our logo is by Deanna Lowe, and I'm Virginia Soul Smith. You can find more of my work at virginiasoulsmith.com or on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soul Smith. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.